I'm Hannah Trum, and this is Hypocritical, a podcast from Powbox, where we discuss security, technology, and compliance news with healthcare industry leaders. Healthcare is an ever-changing industry, but at times is very stuck on old technologies like portal-based email encryption and fax machines. New technologies, new techniques, and innovative ideas are being worked on at every level in healthcare. From single therapist practices to multi-state healthcare systems, something new always seems to be on the horizon. But how do IT and compliance officers research and phase out old technology for newer, easier to use, and more patient-friendly options? I discussed this with today's guest, Anshul Pandey, Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Stanford Children's Health. Anshul gave the keynote at this year's Powbox Summit in April. That's why I listened to him discuss the concept of empathic design, the digital transformation in healthcare, and how we use insights from the pandemic to form better patient care. Hi, Anshul. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I wanted to just go ahead and jump in so I can pick your brain. Stanford Children's Health is a very large organization with a lot of resources. What kind of technology or cybersecurity challenges are you and your team encountering? Well, Hannah, it's been a surprisingly interesting year for us. The last 18 months has seen a huge growth in our technology portfolios in terms of how we have conducted business with more telehealth in place but also in terms of how our employees have worked um, as they have transitioned more from working from home. So all of these changes uh, brought about a new set of problems to solve and a new set of challenges uh, as we implemented those technologies. Um, And then finally, from a patient perspective, their experience and how they experience healthcare from us changed as well. So an all-round interesting and exciting year from an innovation perspective that brought in a new set of challenges uh, Uh, that we got to be in the middle of and solve. Outside of, I would say, 2020 and the pandemic, how often are you and your team assessing cybersecurity risks and your stack and updating your technology? Yeah, the cybersecurity risk part is uh, front and center, right? So we are seeing a lot more attacks happen, not only in the U.S., but uh, throughout the world. And healthcare has been a big target uh, for attackers. And so from a stack assessment perspective, we're doing it continuously. Mm-hmm. We're always looking at where we have vulnerabilities that we need to patch and install and update. Uh, we're also looking at our core products probably every one to two years to see are the next generation products fundamentally better in terms of providing us a stronger security posture. And if they are, how can we quickly migrate to them? So it's a continuous process. It's an ever-evolving one. And there are lots of vendors and partners that are coming into the mix as well, uh, with cybersecurity being such a hot market to understand uh, the new problems and then solutions for them. Do you consider cybersecurity training as an ongoing education program in your company? How often are you doing it? Um, Have you seen more of an uptick lately because of the pandemic? Absolutely. So cybersecurity is ongoing. Uh, I think it starts from day one when you join the organization as part of the orientation. You get the update on Mm -hmm. our approach to cybersecurity. What is that stake? Uh, Some of the regulations, which are very specific to healthcare. Mm -hmm. HIPAA. Um, There is obviously the annual cybersecurity requirements that are there. Uh, We do a ton of uh, brown bag lunches for departments to Mm -hmm. get in-depth about specific topics. Uh, We do phishing testing um, many times a year for separate groups in terms of getting them used to what a a real fish could look like and how to... We we do the same thing. Our compliance officer actually, quote unquote, randomly chose me to do ours. (laughs) And I I got a phishing email and I had to respond and say, hey, these are all of the things that I would do. So I imagine as an organization as big as yours, you do something similar. 
Absolutely. And then the last piece is, piece is our CISO has been keen on uh, sending us news articles as well as stories about how to ensure your own personal cyber hygiene. Mm-hmm. Those stories uh, resonate well with our team members, but those same principles apply to what you need to do from a business perspective. So how do you do online shopping safely mm-hmm. in the midst of, for example, uh, the Christmas season? And then how does that relate to being smart about online purchases from a corporate perspective kind of falls into the same outline. Mm -hmm. It translates really well. We've had a couple of guests, uh, both on our webinars and our podcast, talk about if you can get people to have better cybersecurity practices in their personal life, it'll just automatically translate to a professional life because they're already doing it outside of work. Absolutely. Absolutely. You recently talked, uh, gave a session at our spring summit on the digital transformation in healthcare. During this presentation, something that you said that stood out to me was the importance of empathic design and technology and patient care. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Sure. So we've talked a lot about you know human-centered design uh, for quite some time, and it's really about spending time with your end users, understanding their needs and then coming up with creative solutions to solve them. A lot of times the end users may not be able to quite explain what they want out of the solution, but just mm-hmm. that the pieces together. But then how do they fit in together in a graceful and elegant manner has been always important from a software design perspective. I think the empathic design piece adds another layer of nuance to it to say, not only do you have to make the product to be functional, but also to elicit a positive emotion. And so as long as you provide these nuances that provide them with a working environment that gives them a positive emotion, whatever that is, whether it's a slick way of doing what they were doing before um, or uh, automation on their Mm -hmm. workflows, um, all of those things can change the uh, the brain chemistry of an individual using your software, especially if they're going to use it all day long. And I think that adds to um, that adds to the experience, but it also adds to the stickiness um, of the software. I totally agree. How would you recommend organizations switch to this sort of approach when reviewing their technology stack and their patient care? Yeah, so it's it's tricky, right? It, it comes at the design time. I think it's it's a lot of it is around uh, again understanding what the user is trying to do, uh, getting into their mindset and understanding what is complex, where is heavy cognitive load, uh, and then how do you change the heavy cognitive load? Um, I, I think the gaming companies have done a better job of this than anybody else <laughs> yes. in terms of keeping it engaged. I think social media has done it to a degree too, which is. Uh, giving us continuous dopamine hits, whether it's through the likes or comment sections. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so we have to take some of their best practices into play. And then, you know, some things just don't make sense in a, in a corporate environment. So we got to be cautious about that, that we don't over gamify our applications. <laughs> when providers have access to better information and more technology, easier technology, it makes policy, creating policies and taking care of their patients easier, healthier, they're more engaged. How can the healthcare industry as a whole improve the health of our population worldwide through a population health approach? Yeah, so, you know, for for the longest time, um, we have been in a... uh, in an approach which was very episodic, you came, got care for us, spent time with us in a hospital where we performed a surgery or a key procedure on you, 
and and then you left us and you forgot about it you uh, till the next time that event happened um, and then over the last decade we really started thinking about hey how do we longitudinally take care of the patients um, and what has happened in the last year is because the the direct face-to-face -face contacts became less frequent uh, from all the things going on around us um, this actually accelerated the thought process behind hey how do we better understand cohorts of population that we need to care for? Um, how do we ensure that uh, we are monitoring them remotely as much as possible? Um, and then how do we do appropriate interventions based on the data that we're collecting from them uh, remotely? So a good example is we have a diabetes management program, uh, which includes continuous glucose monitoring at homes. Um, and so all of a sudden, instead of seeing us every few months, uh, with subsets of data based on your glucose levels on that particular day, we can actually get data at about uh, five-minute intervals for all the time. Wow, that's incredible. So all of this data is great, but if I send it in a spreadsheet to a doc and say, okay, in your 15-minute appointment, interpret this gazillion data points and have a meaningful conversation with, with a child to give them <laughs> guidance on what they should do or not do, uh, like that's uh, that just cannot happen, right? So Definitely. a lot of work that has happened is not only collecting this data and bringing it in, but also visualizing it in a way that a physician has to spend less time interpreting the data and more time using that data to have a meaningful conversation about it. And I think that's just an example of things that are going to continue on as we um, as we go on this digital journey, as well as collecting a lot more data and then making that useful in the in the entire life cycle uh, from a patient perspective. I definitely agree. And I think that telehealth has definitely changed that. Telehealth is obviously not new, um, but it took on a whole new meeting in the last year. Uh, from my own personal perspective, I love telehealth. It's easier. I don't have to wait as long for my doctor. I don't have to sit in traffic. I can sit in my own home. I can wear my pajamas. It's great. Um, you also mentioned something in your Pawbox Summit session that actually that like really stood out to me I've talked about it like four or five times to people is that teenage boys are more responsive to their providers if they're having a telehealth session and talking about themselves privately in their own home in their bedroom how do you think telehealth is going to have a place in the future of healthcare what what does that look like to you yeah, so we are we are super excited about telehealth I think um, the example um, that I provided is one of probably hundreds of examples that we have seen of successful use of telehealth, which we couldn't have fathomed 18 months ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, so Definitely. it was the right right solution at the right time and then serendipity in terms of uh, successes with it. I, I think telehealth is here to stay. I think we'll see 20 to 30% of our visits being telehealth for a very long time. Um, and frankly, at some point, we'll stop calling it telehealth. It is just health care mm -hmm. being provided in another medium, right? We don't say clinic health <laughs> and we don't say hospital health. Yes. Uh, so so I, I think our terminology will change. It'll it'll just become that commonplace. Um, I, and, and it has also given us a much wider view of uh, who we can take care of. So previously, it was primarily barrier, barriers, uh, you know, congested. So it would even take some families two to three year, hours to get to us. Mm -hmm. And telehealth kind of removes that barrier and we can see patients who really need our care uh, at, a, at a much wider distance. Um, but it is bringing a new set of problems as well. And we are seeing that the issue which was historically around my neighborhood does not have a healthcare system that can take care of me is moving to my neighborhood does not have the right broadband to be mm -hmm. 
access that healthcare. So the digital divide is going to become much more relevant for us. And there's a lot of work that we're doing from advocacy perspective to ensure that we are not leaving uh, populations of uh, Americans behind just because they don't have the right broadband to be able to access these kind of novel services, uh, which are extremely valuable. Uh, like you said, more uh, more comfortable, a lot more convenient. I'm not spending time on the road. Um, and it makes sense for everybody, right? And it will actually uh, reduce the overall cost of healthcare. I agree. And I really hope that people see the privilege of having high-speed internet and what that can provide for other people. You know, I pay my internet bill every month. I don't really think about it, but other people don't have access to that. And so these people who don't have access to high-speed internet probably don't have access to go to and from the doctor's office in a timely manner. So how do you anticipate individual providers or hospitals at a larger scale approaching telehealth once more people are vaccinated? Let's say this is 12 months from now and fingers crossed every American has the COVID vaccine. How do you think it will look like then? Yeah, so the convenience doesn't go away, right? And there's there's um, one thing written on the board which always worries me: whether at some point convenience um, overcomes uh, quality. Um, and so uh, we have to make sure that the experience is as easy and as seamless as possible. And you can continue to see your doc in your pajamas if they don't have to physically touch mm-hmm. you. Um, and 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 our our thesis is that that'll continue. I, I think it's the, it's a better way to provide healthcare. Um, so, so that fundamentally doesn't change. I, I think we'll see a lot more from a remote monitoring perspective um, as more devices become available um, and as well as more devices that are consumer grade have uh, the ability to collect more data on us. Uh, the trickier part will be how do we assimilate that data? How do we create the uh, the ML models and the AI models to actually be able to hone in on what's relevant in this mm-hmm data sets uh, and be able to provide the appropriate guidance um, at the at the patient's homes um, with some intervention from clinicians uh, at health systems to, to make this all work together, especially for populations that have long-term uh, chronic care mm-hmm. issues um, that uh, could, could really, really benefit from, uh, from this ecosystem evolving and growing and, uh, and maturing. I think something that's cool to think about telehealth and the future of telehealth, and as uh, I think more people realize that high-speed internet is more of like a right nowadays than like an extra, you know, everyone needs it. I think it will be really interesting to see how the healthcare industry evolves in that American doctors with telehealth could see patients in other countries, could give consults to other. So it just opens up this larger thing of, oh, I can see this doctor in France to help me. They are a specialist and you don't have to spend time, money and wasted effort on something that you can do, like you said, from the comfort of your own home. Totally. And, and, you know, the the second opinion programs have been there for quite some time. In fact, we have our own second opinion program at at Stanford where anybody in the world can connect to the second opinion program for our specialists. Wow, that's incredible. So, yeah, for for a small fee, you can actually send your information on very specific areas that we provide that opinion. Uh, and we'll review all of that data for you and then have a consult and answer your questions. And in a number of cases, the answer is simply, hey, what your local providers are doing is absolutely correct. This is the way to do it. On occasion, we'll say, hey, this is what we know best about it. And here's the approach and uh, tweaks you want to make. And, and and on occasion, we'll say, hey, come to us because there's a novel approach that we are using uh, that could benefit you. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's, it's a super interesting program. It's uh, it's uh, It's well utilized. Uh, just for the use cases that you talked about, um, and and definitely gives the opportunity for um, for the entire world to be able to see what we are doing from a research perspective and how it could benefit them. 
I, I, I think 100% transparency, hey, this is what we're doing, this is what we can do is only better for obviously the patient, but healthcare and everyone as a whole. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really, I love listening to you speak. So I was really thrilled when you agreed to be on the podcast today. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, and I had a great time uh, answering your questions. Thank Take you. Care. To learn more about Anshul Pandey's keynote session or for additional resources on HIPAA compliance, head to powbox.com slash blog. In case you missed it, we have decided to postpone Powbox Secure this year due to the changing COVID-19 landscape. Please check powboxsecure.com for more information as it becomes available. Ready to network within the industry? Come join our next virtual mixer on August 26th. We'll send you a complimentary beverage to your door that day and attendance is completely free. Please email me at hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H at powbox.com and I'll get you registered. Is there a topic you'd like to see us explore in Hypocritical? Awesome. Email me and we can get the conversation started. My email is hannah at powbox.com. You can listen to every episode of Hypocritical on powbox.com or subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Hypocritical Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Trum, signing off.